Hello, and welcome back to Chit Heads. I'm Khalid, one of the learning navigators at Embodied Philosophy, and I'm excited to open up this episode. Today, Jacob interviews Nikki Costello, an educator with 30 years of teaching and training experience in the yoga and wellness industry. She works at the intersection of social justice and yoga with a focus on facilitating new models of embodied leadership. Nikki is a senior Iyengar yoga teacher and a certified yoga therapist. In 2016, Nikki was named one of the 100 most influential teachers in America. She is the featured Iyengar yoga teacher on GLOW. In this episode, Jacob and Nikki talk about courage, safety, and trust in sadhana, rethinking how we learn and how we create community within the framework of a yoga class pedagogical practices that support or inhibit access, belonging, and diversity, and the virtual classroom as an opportunity instead of a limitation. We're jumping right into this honest conversation as Nikki, who was a PhD candidate at the California Institute of Integral Studies, expresses the challenging, the rewarding aspects of balancing in-depth, structured scholarship with her lived experiences as a yoga practitioner. We hope you enjoy. Actually, let me let me say it this way. One of the kind of great boons of realizing that there are these continued sort of places in your sadhana where you need to kind of hone in, tune in, refine, it is certainly for me, and we started talking about this, this, this notion of being able to plan everything out and to kind of, you know, approach things in this progressive way or somehow I'm going to move along from this and then I'm going to do this. It's really a wake-up call when we start to do that to such a degree that we are actually placing a kind of chasm between that which we know to be true around the spiritual life and how grace and these kind of moments of, of wonder and things come from a place that we haven't conceptualized where it's like, oh, well, I have to actually have the ground of my being able to receive this. And if I'm in full-on willful planning mode, it's not going to happen. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel this way. It's kind of a paradox being like, I feel very inspired and, and in a way nourished, not necessarily in terms of sadhana, but in terms of, you know, intellectual engagement. And I feel very blessed to be able to be, you know, studying right now and in this program. But I definitely feel that I don't have the space to receive <laughs> sometimes. Like, I just feel kind of I feel like up until I started this program specifically, like I, I think everything in my life, it was kind of like, oh yeah, I can do that. And I can do that. And I can do that too. And I can add that. And then I added this and I was like, oh, and I have reached my limit, you know, full stop, <laughs> full stop. And then the, the challenge of not having the container for my retreats in sadhana that I had, you know, like Paul's retreats haven't continued. And so I haven't had a space to go since before COVID. Um, that has really affected just my relationship with my sadhana. And so that kind of balance, you know, the scholar practitioner balance, we might call it, is is really challenging sometimes. And there's so many forces beyond just the overwhelm and the stress. There's so many forces academically that draw you kind of away from that embodied and space where you can receive the grace. You're in a really good place at at CIIS because I feel like they're 
they're designed to accommodate that in a way that's kind of their, their legacy and their history and their, their stamp is that that's what they do. Is that what you've experienced there? I, I, I would, um, I would agree that that would probably be the umbrella. And then there's a way in which the program that I'm in, because I'm in anthropology and social change, there's a certain, uh, rigor less toward the spiritual mm -hmm. and or the somatic. And I think in some ways it's what I can contribute over these next few years is that I'm often in dialogues in class where I will tap into the feeling, the sensation of something like, why are we saying this and feeling that like, how are we, how are we engaging the contradiction of, of what's actually a felt experience and how are we moving toward these concepts or what we all call like theory and practice? Like how are we moving in some ways where we're theoretically building this kind of new language, this new vocabulary for engagement? And yet what I realized right at the end of the term, it was like the other vocabulary I had started to merge with it. For the first like few months, as I was sort of taking in this new concept, these new ways, this just even just a set of texts that I had never encountered before and, and a history that I hadn't encountered. Like I found myself like completely saturated. And yet the only way I climbed out, like at the end of the term to form my own questions and write papers was that I actually returned to my spiritual foundation. Mm. Like, how do I know this to be true? from this other lived experience. Mm -hmm. And so how can I incorporate this lived experience and the analysis in a way that is kind of building the bridge that I think we're all aiming to do as scholarly practitioners, practitioner scholars, which I kind of call myself my practitioner scholar um, in that order. I like to prioritize practitioner. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'm like, the day I call myself a scholar will be, you know, something, uh, the, the penny dropped. I don't know. But like, <laughs> I, I just sort of feel like uh, there's definitely an amping up academically around scholarship. And I just feel really fortunate, as you know, many of the scholars that I've been in relationship with for the last 25 years, that being in relationship with and and coming from the Hatha yoga embodied somatic perspective and being philosophically, religiously, you know, spiritually engaged with the scholarly approach has, has really what has formed the foundation of, of, of my teaching for sure, and my studentship as well. So yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to kind of go, well, do I call myself a scholar now because I have the stamp of some kind of degree? Because truly speaking, you know, I'm, I've been self-studied you know, all of these years of being a yoga practitioner and, and it was, and always had the philosophy and the, and the texts. Yeah. I, uh, that resonates with me because I, I feel that I, I wouldn't call myself, I don't call myself a scholar. Um, certainly I don't have a PhD. So I feel like that's generally the, the, the thing you're supposed to have before you can say that, you know, setting aside whether or not that's problematic, but yeah, it feels a little fraudulent. Like I don't necessarily, I wouldn't want to purely associate myself with kind of those parameters, I guess. Um, but yeah, I'm really curious about this and I'm, I'm excited and I love that we've, you know, in a way are walking sort of parallel paths and in, in, in the foot 
uh, prints, is that what they say, of, of many people who've done similarly over the past several decades. Um, and many, you know, people I've interviewed this podcast who've started out as meditators or yoga practitioners and sort of became more deeply engaged with the traditions. Um, but, and I guess when looking back to when I met you and, and, and how long I've known you and taking your classes in New York, I mean, I can see the seeds of it there, but last time we spoke, which I should mention for those listening was probably five or six years ago. And it was one of the first podcast episodes. I mean, I think if we look back, it's like number nine or something. Um, and here we are. You know, I mean, I could have been much higher number if I'd been doing these weekly like I used to, but we're nearly to, at 200 now and it's been a while. So what happened? <laughs> what, what, how did you um, get this, you know, desire, this kind of um, uh, inner prompting to study more deeply? Like what happened in your own sadhana, in your own explorations that inspired you to do this? Thank you for asking. And as you're speaking and you asked me that, I uh, names, names of like wonderful scholars are coming to the surface. So I'd like to acknowledge them because I feel that it is um, it is their presence in my life, starting early on with Paul Muller Ortega, Bill Mahoney, uh, Carlos Pomeda. Um, I I found myself like pulled toward that the study that that went deeper into the tradition and that helped me understand if if the philosophy that i'm studying um requires this kind of intellectual intellectual hook this intellectual kind of unpacking uh how how do i relate that to uh the way that i've experienced the asana the way that i've experienced moving toward form in in the physical uh and just so that everyone who's hearing this knows i absolutely love the physical practice mm -hmm. uh and and for me i'm saying this because it doesn't stop at the physical it's it's again the influence of the scholarship that um that i just named that helped me to um, create those connections between what I was grasping as a um, as a concept, right? As a cosmology, as a way of seeing the world, what I was grasping and how that actually felt physically when I when I could hold a teaching and experience its its um kind of movement inside myself. So I would say that that was like an early experience. And I don't know that, um, I don't know that I had an inclination then toward an academic life. I do know that the seeds were certainly planted for that kind of study. And so a lot of self-study happened, a lot of, um, uh, of my own going deeper into texts. And then I would say then there is the next generation of uh, scholarship that um, would be my peers and uh, my sadhana family. And so uh, Mark McLaughlin, uh, Hamsa Staten, Ben Williams. So that that next, you know, what I consider the next generation of scholarship, we were always in dialogue. We were like speaking a lot and co-taught and had these experiences of witnessing one another's 
growth and how the scholarship was an anchor in the material world and in the intellectual world. And yet the articulation was so important as a way of being able to hold really to, to be able to hold the knowledge, you know, and uh, again, my, in my relationship with them, it was always like coming back to the physical and, and it really was in um, more of an intimate conversation with uh, Mark McLaughlin, who is at William and Mary. Uh, he and I were sitting at the same table you and I sat in for the <laughs> first table. time we spoke together. <laughs> and, uh, and he asked me outright, like, have you thought about scholarship in your own you know, in your own path, in your own future. And then um, it was through him that I was introduced to James Mallinson. And then then things just rolled in that direction. So when I went to London to teach, um, to teach there, I had an opportunity to meet with uh, Jim. And it was through that exchange that I realized that it would be a really great program for me to um, to engage in and the Hatha Yoga project was also happening at the same time. So I'll just say one other thing about that, um, which is that I had in a very sort of, again, funny way thought, yeah, I'll do this. I'll take a year off. I'll take a sabbatical and I'll do an MA program. <laughs> do you know <laughs> what, what kind of thinking was that really though I did limit my teaching and I moved to London. And so I did get to, uh, I just, I did get to just be with my own process and thoughts and, um, and, uh, it, it, it certainly wasn't a sabbatical. So I don't advise, um, I don't advise that. Um, but I guess in some ways, academically, you could say that often, um, scholars, when they take their sabbaticals, are having the opportunity to go deeper into their own subject matter. So in some ways, that was actually, you know, very true. It, I just would say it wasn't a rest. Yeah. Uh, it was um, same. It was an amping up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, you know, I mean, as you've been talking about kind of the the road that led you here. There's obviously been a lot of scholar friends along the way. And and even when I remember taking your class, you would have, was it Mark LeGlockin who would come and teach in your class? Yeah, I remember, I remember him. And and so you always had this way of incorporating scholarship in some form or another, or at least deeper um, scholarly perspectives into your classes, which is one of the reasons why I always really loved your classes. Um, and so you were, you know, primed for it in a way at what you were having these kinds of higher, you know, at least more nuanced conversations with other scholars. So, but when you actually got into academia, did you have any kind of culture shock? Was it, was there, <laughs> I'm asking, cause I want to know if you share some of my, my challenges. Okay, Jacob, uh, I will be transparent here and in 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 this dialogue with you also because i think it's like really critical at this moment uh i had not been in school for nearly 24 years um prior to going for my masters 
And my undergraduate study was um, artistically inclined. You know, I was at NYU, I was in the theater department um, and then shifted to Gallatin. And that's when I started to realize that I had this aptitude for uh, kind of creating, you know, curating my own um, path towards study. As much as I was a, you know, a thespian, an actor, I started to study um, Eastern philosophy and religion and uh, and and also sociology and, and found myself attracted toward um, feminist thinkers and so forth. So again, in my undergraduate, these were, I would say like, it was like a buffet and I just sort of tasted a little bit of, of, of many things. So when I got to SOAS, the one year um, masters there, and one year I'm saying for uh, international students, so it was a one year program, uh, were pretty much assigned, you know, the, the core curriculum. And then we had an opportunity to, uh, to take an elective and I chose Sanskrit as my elective both terms. And, uh, and now come kind of comes like the deep dive into shock. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it's, it, I appreciated that the structure, the, the university structure would have these like 10 week sessions and then after the coursework, you'd kind of dig into your papers. And then similarly, you'd go into the next term, you'd have a 10 week co of courses and of your coursework, and then you would dig into your papers. And most of every class, really the assessment of your learning was um, a 3000 word essay. So within that year, all things combined, um, four classes each term and a dissertation uh we're looking at we're looking at somewhere around right like uh 50,000 words or something right in that year and so let me let me first start um with this i am a natural speaker <laughs> right theater training and um extemporaneous speaking and making connections and being in dialogue is, um, is, is natural, is comfortable, is, uh, what I, what I gravitate toward. It just feels like it's a part of me. Uh, writing is one of the most kind of challenging disciplines. Uh, and, and it was interesting because I encountered what I felt was my own, you know, failure in the area because, like I felt so, I, I, you know, I did have some pride around discipline. Like I'm a disciplined person. I, you know, I can structure myself this way. I get down and I do the work and yet, uh, yeah, no, um, it was a whole <laughs> different thing. And, and I'm going to add the part that I want to say was um, illuminating and also dramatic, which was that my uh, advisor at SOAS um, requested really that I go for testing. And um, because that what, what she had observed and what I was starting to speak through, she said, you know, I, I think you're a neurodiverse learner. I, I'm, I'm encouraging you to go through this testing process. And uh, they, you know, generously did that for me at SOAS. And it, and it turned out 
that um, what I had always sort of thought to be true, that I uh, am dyslexic and um, have a really hard time processing um, what I read and that um, it's uh, it requires like several steps to go from the reading to the brain to the page, that mm. everything that I did took three to four Sorry. times as long. Yeah. And, and that was a real turning point for me. And I will say, and, and because we're having this kind of conversation from a sadhana perspective, I had concepts about myself as a learner that were, you know, conceived early on in my education about my own capacity. And then I found ways through my entire education to kind of work around where I struggled. And um, and then it was confrontational, right? And then I found myself in an MA program going, I can't quit. And yet uh, this has to be one of the most grueling things I've ever um, considered. Mm. And and the thing is, is um, in for more. And so here I am. <laughs> and then you're like, like and, but I'm going to go do a PhD now. <laughs> well, going going from what you and I have spoken about and in my contribution to the radical pedagogy conference i will say this um i am looking to bring something to scholarship and to academia around uh neurodiverse learning hmm. and around ways to you know for lack of a better word test assess that incorporate uh, different forms and how learning can be, um, just how it can be demonstrated or shared as like other ways of knowing, other ways of forming knowledge. And it just feels critical right now because we're, we're in a period where we're so painfully seeing the effects of um, white supremacy on our culture, the effects of racism, um, sexism, it's, it's all, it's all been there. Right. And yet academia seems to hold many of those systems in place mm -hmm. through the way that knowledge is shared and assessed. And how does the learner end up feeling about themselves and does it perpetuate the sort of insider, outsider, belonging, not belonging, um, capable, incapable, able, disabled. Like it's like it's it it all can kind of be wrapped up in this notion of am I performing well? Mm -hmm. Am I am I giving you what you've asked for? And it's and that's where I feel like as I continue to do this study and start to understand what my project or contribution will be is that. I am going to be going from some sort of personal narrative, uh, you know, lived experience and that education is incredibly important to me. And so, you know, we'll see how, how I can add that's that beautiful. voice. Yeah. That's so, I love how you just kind of moved into that, um, direction of, you know, um, essentially leveraging your own lived experience to shape 
it sounds like it's shaping your research in a way. Is that is that right? Like what it, you you haven't actually said yet, but what is the the project itself in your PhD? Do you have sort of a a key arena that you're looking to to explore? I I um, believe it's going to continue um, in terms of the classroom and what what we've right. spoken about. So reimagine the classroom. What does the classroom look like as an inclusive you know, diverse, thriving, um, you know, vocal place where uh, where each body is able to be in its own body, in its own in its own um, in its own power, in its own strength. And how does the learning happen when we're in cohorts and when we're in community that um, that has the power to uplift, uplift, and uh, and share. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I'm looking at is whether there are pedagogical practices that support or inhibit those spaces. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really glad we've, we're talking about this because, um, I'll give a little bit of context for the listeners. Um, I'm including this interview in kind of, um, a map of an editorial campaign that we're exploring over the next year that I'm calling the future of the yoga teacher, um, which actually we did a series of panels um, a number of years ago, like 2018, I think on that very topic. And I interviewed people based on, or we did panel discussions based on different kind of professional intersections. So like yoga teacher and therapist, yoga teacher and spiritual advisor, et cetera. Um, and I wanted to return to this topic just because I think you know, that was obviously pre-COVID. And, you know, a few different things have happened, I think, in the time since then. One has been this reckoning with all of these kind of social issues. And one is sort of the decimation of, you know, what was previously the yoga studio world in the wake of COVID and how everything has closed. So there's, there's, and then, you know, and, and all these yoga teachers who still want to be teachers are sort of asking themselves, like, where do I go from here? Whether it's professionally, like how do I find students or like, how do I actually shape and evolve my own professional offering? Like we're doing with scholarship, but other people are doing in other ways. Um, you know, how do I evolve the very idea of what it is to be a yoga teacher? And that's why I think, you know, your project of reimagining the yoga classroom, which is what you talked about in the radical pedagogy conference. So anybody that's listening, please go watch that <laughs> available now on EPTV. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it, it really, to me is a beautiful kind of, um, expression of this, of this very topic. And so I guess maybe in, in, uh, you know, and we can repeat a few of the ideas that's totally fine as well, but what is the issue, you know, in addition to kind of white supremacy and the issues that you've been addressing um, in terms of inclusion, what do you see as sort of the main obstacles of the way in which we see the yoga classroom right now and, and why that inspires the need for change? Hmm. I almost want you to repeat the question again for all of us. <laughs> Let's see. It can could I, come out differently. Can it could I come rehash out differently. It? Yeah, yeah. I think I can. Um, so what is what what are the um 
what are the sources of exclusion in the current idea of the yoga classroom or the current format of the yoga classroom that is inspiring this need to reevaluate the idea of the yoga classroom? Okay, I I can come I can I can approach this. I can come at this uh simply first with one of the things that I saw early on that was a source of exclusion was um able, right? Yeah. So ableism. And what came to me early on in teaching yoga because I started in my early 20s and what was possible, right? What I was able to do and what was possible uh, had come also from a dance background, from being an athlete, from being very physical. So, so when I started yoga and learned the asanas, there was ability that had been, you know, cultivated in, in other ways um, up until that point. And the turning point for me was that when I started to teach, I began to notice that, right, not everyone that was in front of me or in the class had the same level of access. And so I'm going to kind of work with the word able and access and, and kind of hold them up. Because when we're able it's like receiving the instruction from the teacher, you know, put the hand here, do this with the other hand, have your, you know, have your, your body situated in, in, in this way. And it's, it's kind of given as a set of instructions to, to create that, you know, that shape. And then there are real ways in which one body may not right, perform in that way. And so early on, my own eyes were saying, what is it that I'm saying here? What am I saying? What am I presenting that may exclude those from, from being able to actually access what it is that, 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 I'm, that I'm doing or that I'm kind of understanding about the energy or that form? And so I think that that was at the basis of my own educational process around um, becoming a, a certified Iyengar yoga teacher. Because over and over again, I was having the experience in class with Iyengar yoga teachers that I would have uh, this experience of an asana having approached it the way that, 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 you know, that I knew to or had been taught to. And then all of a sudden this other nuanced approach would come and parts of my body would kind of wake up or, or, or kind of come together. And all of a sudden the posture was new. And it didn't mean that, you know, if I'm doing a, you know, I'm just basically like if I'm doing a standing pose that my right palm was on the floor in Trikonasana. It didn't mean that. It might be on a block. It might be on something else. But what happened was using the proper, using the support or using the instruction, which created a different kind of action that the access changed, hmm. right? And it was less about my ability to perform in a way that, that looked a certain way or matched an idea. And it was more about, is there access to what is 
unseen or underneath the surface of that appearance. Mm. So that's where my own study started to go. So I would say that one of those sources of exclusion have to do with not as a yoga teacher, and I know that this is popular, giving students choices that look like if you feel like, if you want to, if you, because that certainly isn't in the kind of training that and that that I've had, though I understand its benefit. It's actually as a teacher developing the eye of observation and understanding access so that when you're giving choices, you are actually continuing to lead. Um, and by lead, I mean, guide people into where their own access point may be. Mm. I, I hope that that was clear, but that's- Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like that. That's that one. Idea, that idea yeah. of access. Yeah, that was really well put. Uh, I think that, you know, again, to to- to walk bravely into the subject as well is that um, I didn't think about myself early on in my yoga practice as a white woman teaching yoga. I really didn't. And, and again, these ideas, and they're not just ideas, they're, they're, they're visible, right? <laughs> The things that we're saying now, <laughs> the things that we're saying now about cultural appropriation or mm. what, you know, what is a, what kind of space does a white woman create as a, as a class, as a community, what kind of space because of that and, and really, you know, identifying my locations and recognizing that that has an impact is something that I wouldn't even have had the language for Yeah. right? Yeah. when I first started teaching. And I appreciate that I do now and that I'm learning about it, that yeah. I'm learning about it and understanding that, of course, what, um, what I can be saying or doing can, can have an impact and that others that uh, may not gravitate or, or, or want to go toward because it, it doesn't feel um, safe or inclusive. So, and boy, that I just used the S word. Um, <laughs> Do you have a, a fraught relationship with that word? Well, you and I have both been, uh, in our sense, engaged in sadhana. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to say doing sadhana. You know, we're engaged in sadhana. And the S word, the safe word, <laughs> mm -hmm. the safe word, the safe word um, is that that engagement with sadhana is about courage, not safety. Yeah. What is the safety in sadhana is that we are we have either a teacher, a guru, a master that, that we actually do experience safety under their guidance or not. Some don't. We, we have a community. We have then in ourself the understanding that the safety is the bigger net, right? That, that allows us to um, 
how should I say this, this sort of like this bigger net that, that, that is really the truth of our existence, which is we're really not in control here. We're really, we're really a part of the, of the big sort of, you know, the, 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 the multi-dimensional connected web of life. Right. And that that can feel safe to kind of lean back and go, I'm a part of this bigger, you know, bigger thing, bigger relationship. Uh, what really I'm saying is that sadhana requires courage. It requires bravery. Uh, and it's not necessarily that we're going to encounter safety as we <laughs> excavate our own egos, as we, you know, as we look at those um, concepts or ideas that we hold about ourselves, that we, you know, that we really want to uh, transform. And then, and so for me, like, how does safe relate to um, fire? <laughs> Do you know? Because we know that fire can warm and we also know that fire can burn. It's still, it's the same element. So anyway, I use the S word and I might've gotten myself off. Um, no, you didn't because I, <laughs> I'm really topic, glad but... that you went on that little tangent. Cause I think it's a really, I think it's a really interesting topic. And, and I think what you had just said, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to edit that out and use it in a little, like in a little word um, blurb for you. Cause I feel like it's really interesting and it's, it's one of the best articulations of kind of, from from the perspective of sadhana and from you know what we hold to be true about the possibility of sadhana um how we relate to that more i guess let's say contracted understanding of safety because you were kind of articulating a larger idea of safety that sometimes feels from the perspective of that contracted view of safety unsafe right in certain instances um and and so you said something interesting that I'm I'm curious if you think is is what characterizes you said something about control right in terms of in terms of that let's let's call it small s safety. Um, so do you think that what characterizes the need the desire the yearning and the longing for that is a desire for some kind of control and that when you are engaging with sadhana you have to, and you are trying to access the big S safety, <laughs> which is also the big S self, right? Yeah. Is that you, that you have to kind of relinquish that control in a way. I, I definitely think there's a tension there. And, yeah. and so whether it's like a full letting go relinquish or whether or not it's the sort of meta meta view of the tension between yeah. it's important. And, uh, I guess where I'm going and maybe it's another word to add in and it's, it's become somewhat of an overused word, but I'll throw it into the, into the conversation anyway, which is autonomy. So mm -hmm. if we're looking at the spaces that we're creating, like in community and in the classroom, can there be an invitation for autonomy? And then what does that really look like? So if a class, a yoga class is a led experience, Right. If there is the the relationship of teacher student student teacher, uh, what does autonomy look like when we're in that kind of exchange? And so again, if autonomy in in my again in my experience, autonomy is and having the the capacity to 
use your voice to express your needs to to go in a direction that um that that feels right that um where you're able to kind of step forward and even if even if the stepping forward doesn't feel safe because it's going to be challenging you're choosing it so it's in a sense it's related to choice right mm -hmm. so you have autonomy and you have choice and and so we could be saying i'm into this thing i want to be engaged in in a in a community in a practice that that means that i'm going to be pushing against what it means to be safe mm -hmm. and yet i'm choosing to go this way or i'm choosing to engage my body in this way, or I'm choosing, or I'm choosing to put my, you know, my camera on, on the, in the virtual yoga class, like you have the choice. And then that helps to start to form how the dynamic, um, you know, and the exchanges between the teacher and the student. So I'd like to add that that is another aspect of like, again, this is, me riffing with you on things I've thought about for a long time, but I really am attempting to, and I feel like the virtual yoga class world has been, you know, uh, we say, you know, Viparita Karani, like in the, the, the topsy turvy, the sort of yeah. like turned everything, you know, revert in reverse, because here's the extraordinary thing, right? It's like, you're not in a yoga class and everybody's kind of going to get the props and we only have this many bolsters or a but you know or this much space at the wall no no we every single person in their own you know home world office wherever it is that they're participating has all of these various moments of choice right choice to turn on your camera turn off the camera choice to do that multiple times throughout the class uh the the ability to kind of leave the space if you have to have a bio break and you're not you're not sort of missing something or you know waiting in line in some lobby to to use the bathroom but i'm i'm really bringing up things that 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 i saw you know come up in in classes and then if 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 we have in our own worlds in our own environments the the ability to um to use a prop, to use a wall, to take support, to do alternatives, to we're starting to actually experience that there's a lot more of oneself saying yes at every stage than kind of being, you know, I'm just gonna use the word herded into like this or that or and so I, I think that um the virtual space has has opened up uh, the vocabulary of yoga teacher, the, the, the invitation around, um, inquiry and allowing the student to engage themselves on a much deeper level. Mm. I mean, wow. I, 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 you have a very optimistic view of this, <laughs> of the virtual yoga world. I mean, I feel like most of the things you hear now is just, it's like lamenting the the loss of the shared space and the energy of that. I totally, I can, I totally hear what you're saying and it makes a lot of sense. And I, I hadn't thought about it in, in the ways that you're kind of articulating. I find, I, I personally find that this, that I have too much choice a little bit and, and that 
and that what it ha let leads me to default to is kind of my sort of frenetic nature at this stage of my life where, you know, I can more easily stop this, look at my phone, you know, go to the bathroom 10 times. Um, and so in the, in the face of that, you know, I guess maybe that's part of the challenge, right? That's sort of what <laughs> that becomes the object of your sadhana in a way. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the follow-up question is that are there, are there any ways that you've, you know, observed that th there's some limitations that you're sort of missing from the, from the in-person experience of the classroom? Well, forgive me for not wanting to go toward limitations. I'm, I'm not going to, um, <laughs> because I want to go toward opportunity. And when, when I say opportunity, what I mean is how often do we need to be in person with our yoga teacher or our community? Let's say that we have been in a community online for some time, but now I feel the opportunity that I have with the community that I work with is we're going to be together for one week in X month. And that the opportunity is to have this kind of both personal and interpersonal kind of exchange that we're having online when we're not all in the same room, breathing the same air. However, we are, we, we are in community and we do recognize the other bodies, the other names, the other, you know, the other people that are with us. And then we come together in a kind of concentrated moment where we get to kind of form a container to be in retreat, to go deep, to, to connect in that way. And then we get to go and assimilate that, which I think is uh, more conducive to um, how we actually make the teachings our own. Because otherwise, there is, and, and there can be, and we've seen it, there is a tendency to consume, uh, to consume um, yoga practice like we consume other things or to kind of feel good or to kind of have that, you know, high. It's like something we want to have and, and consume. And, 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 and the truth is, is that the practice is already cultivating you, you know, it's already kind of doing its, it's kind of doing its work from the inside out and that the coming together can be a celebration. And then the going apart is a time for assimilation. And, and I feel that in, in my own sadhana, I've respected the time in proximity and the time away as a kind of vital pulse, right? Uh, so that we're actually able to recognize how we've internalized something, how how we've progressed, uh, rather than constantly having input, 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 input. So that's why I that's why I'm referring to it as an opportunity instead of a limitation. Uh, I know as a teacher that I can't hear the. Oh and the moans and the deep exhalations when I'm teaching virtually and everyone's muted. So 
you know, in a room that might be a collective moment of like, you know, laughter or a sigh, okay, everybody just, you know, take a resting pose, right? Where I don't actually get to hear those things. So we could call that a limitation because I can't hear or, you know, there might be the tone of someone's skin that I can't see as clearly, right? As if, if I wasn't right up against it. I do my absolute best in this medium to get right in everyone's <laughs> space. That can be a limitation uh, or it can, um, again, be an opportunity to uh, harness. I mean, I can tell you, uh, Jacob, if your camera was on and you know you were in my class, you ain't gonna be checking anything. You're not gonna have a second <laughs> to check a phone or run away. You'll have the choice to. But the thing is, is that that's the beauty of, of teaching, right? Like, even if we think about it intellectually, if we think about it um, in ideas, like what is a, what does a great teacher do? It's like somehow they, they launch, like, it's like they, they hook, they like kind of hook you and whether they're hooking your attention, right. Or they're kind of creating a focal point. So the same thing, your attention, your focal point, good teaching asks either the question or creates a pace or sort of sets a tone that you get hooked. Not, not to me, but to something that it's doing to you. And, and I think that, you know, from what you've shared, yes, um, we're not, we're, we're not uh, getting hooked so much now because the tendency is dispersed, right? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that you're going towards opportunity because that's obviously an optimistic view and there's always opportunities everywhere. Um, and uh, I'm glad you brought up the, the, mo the shared moaning because one of my favorite things to do is to moan on the exhale in a yoga class. <laughs> And I have to say, people don't do it here. And I think people probably think I'm strange, but I feel like that was a very common practice in, <laughs> in the New York <laughs> pre-COVID world. Yeah, pre-COVID exhalation. You know, um, it's like it's like doing doing simhasana in, in every <laughs> every pose somehow. Um, yeah. So, is there anything? Uh, is there anything else that in terms of this kind of reimagining of the yoga classroom, are there any kind of really key themes that you've been, I know you've been doing this, a series of conversations and classes around this very topic. So what are some other kind of big themes that have come up for you as you've been having conversations and exploring this topic and thinking deeply about it? Uh, I really, really enjoy hearing a student's insight, revelation, you know, expression of uh, understanding. And so having said that, and I always frame it in this way that, you know, traditionally, as we've experienced, you know, in the US and historically a yoga class is nonverbal, meaning the teacher's talking, but everybody else is nonverbal. And what, you know, what I can imagine in, uh, in how we start to reshape the classroom is that 
uh, is that there is more inclusion of of others' voices. So would it look like, you know, passing the baton, you know, from pose to pose? Would it look like more of a Im improvised kind of experience or practice? And and that that somehow this expression of being able to practice in community and who's leading and who's following and who's speaking and who's listening and that there is there is much more fluidity between the roles because what is built is a shared kind of language uh again not a i don't want to say a shared language that's like you know um that becomes its own exclusatory like thing but but that there is um i should say and that there's this way that that underneath all of that, there's a trust built, right? And then that trust becomes that 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 big, you know, that bigger s that that web that we that big s safety, you know, that that lean into because there's a trust in how a community has come together, where um, there's not a defined hierarchy or role or position that that everyone's sort of taking responsibility for the creation of that space. So I'm really curious about this because I think it's really fascinating that this is where, you know, how your own perspective and approach has evolved. Um, and I don't know if you're gonna be comfortable talking about this or not, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. Um, so, you know, I know about you and uh, that you have been, you've, you've studied with traditional teachers who, who, um, uh, who are part of a context that is a bit more top down, let's say. Yeah. And, um, and there are very, there's very much a sort of disciplined expectation about the way that you approach the teacher, you relate to the teacher. It's very structured, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how the evolution of your relationship with this as yourself a teacher has shaped your own perception of that kind of structure do you has it been become problematized for you as you've been in, investigating these things or do you hold or is that another tension that you hold kind of within yourself um and and are and kind of are exploring so i'm just yeah i'm just curious mm. because mm. because i i you know feel the same similarly i've had experiences in in communities where that kind of traditional role of the teacher is is observed um and you know and and so is there i guess another way of asking this is like is there still a need for that type of relationship in a world where we've become much more flexible about the classroom to accommodate inclusion mm. okay i'm gonna go for another word uh okay. can we replace role with respect mm-hmm Let's do it. Because because let's do it. Let's say that yes, in 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 the traditional schools that I've been a part of, they're, you know, like the the teacher is like Maha, you know, they're the they're like the the great grand one, you know. And the question that arises for me is 
are they projecting that or is it projected onto them? Because this, these sort of failures in, in uh, the teacher-student relationship and, and real failures like abuses. And I am not, um, and I don't want to go off there. Right. What I will say though is I can have the utmost respect for the teacher and still in that exchange be situated across from, right? Or, you know, accompanying side by side. And I think that it is both, right? Being able to discriminate, to identify, is the teacher projecting that role? Is the student projecting that role? Is there mutual respect? So I, I, I'll, I'll just let that sort of sit for a, a moment because I'm not moving around your question because I am in a sense, uh, certainly, I don't wanna say a product of because I'm not a product and I'm not for sale. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I have not, just in yoga, like I came from a traditional like ballet school, you know, growing up and believe me, you know, the, the ballet master with the stick, you know, like I, I came from that. So this is sort of what I'm saying about learning and about education and where we pick up ideas around who I am in that space. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that the more that we're in dialogue about who are we all in that space, we're not all trying to be one thing, right? We want to all be who we are, right? Who, who we are. And that, that means that, you know, we show up with that uh, capacity to have the autonomy to make choices. We are showing up as we are and we're, we're, we're comfortable or we get more comfortable sharing our voice, sharing our thoughts, sharing our opinions. And so I'm envisioning a community where that is what is at the forefront is that there's a respect for difference. There's a respect of the tension of, yes, I'm saying this and I may be leading you now. And can we shift that? <laughs> Can you lead tomorrow? Can, and, and, you know, can it happen in such a way or can one student choose another student to lead? Like how, how does that uh, come into being? And so part of my study is looking at the ways that community has formed around um, cooperative, around mutual aid, around, uh, you know, thriving, thriving, recognizing, okay, there's this big C system. There's this big capital system that is, you know, exists everywhere on our planet. And within that, recognizing the tension of that, is there another way that we can be relating, that we can be starting to create an alternative, right? So it's, it's, uh, I think one of the most important things that that I've 
learned, and I wouldn't say learned, I shouldn't say learned with an ED, it should be an ING, that I am learning is that holding the tensions, holding the contradictions, the oppositions, the, the, the all that's kind of thrown in there is uh, an opportunity, right? And I'll bring it back to my sadhana, an opportunity to start to recognize in myself when I become fundamentalist, when I become like to see that the very things that we're, we're fighting against aren't, we aren't doing in our own processes, you know, our own thinking. So that's why this, this experience of, of holding the tension of, of, the do and the undo or the push and the pull, like holding that tension is actually an opportunity to elevate. Uh, <laughs> I should say elevate while still, you know, with the feet on the ground, but elevate our capacity to see and our capacity to be with. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I imagine a part of this process for you is to, perform some exper experiments in the classroom. Have you, <laughs> have you made any, you know, have you done any kind of experiments in, in sort of playing with this idea and how it actually manifests in your, in, in the spaces that you're, um, you know, holding? Uh, I have, and, um, I have not yet analyzed it for its success or failure. <laughs> Though I'll say this, as you know, and you knew me in this space, when I started the teacher's practice in uh, 2000, 2008, nine, um, I started it in my own home studio and before it moved to Kula, and then later virtual. The teacher's practice was a gathering place, and uh, I very much was leading that, right? And I would come and, you know, there'd be philosophy and there'd be a theme, and, and I would say I was leading it. However, what I began to see was how so many relationships were formed because of that space. So people came for this uh, led experience, the inspiration, the, the kind of um, guidance maybe of a more senior teacher. However, what was really powerful was the, 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 the kind of groupings, the pairings, the, the formations of, of, of support and the collegial sort of feeling in that space. So I had the opportunity in 2022 to lead the teacher's practice online. And it was coming off of my, you know, master's dissertation and, and really thinking, well, if I am going to put this to the test and I'm going to start to work toward this project, how, how can I kind of reimagine the teacher's practice? Right. So what I did in 2022 is I had, um, Teaching to Transgress uh, by Bell Hooks as the central text. And so we read that uh, book throughout the year and explored, you know, the, the themes, the ideas, chapter by chapter um, in the way in which we are engaged as teachers. And so you know, that was a real departure for me because I can lean into the yoga canyon, right? But I I never, you know, I never sort of like saw myself as somebody who could take something, you know, from another discipline and say, well, let's 
let's use this here as a way for us to be able to uh, put into practice what bell hooks is envisioning for the classroom. And um, so teaching to transgress education as the practice of freedom. And what I will say experimentally is that what happened is that uh, we did gradually over the first six months move away from a traditional asana class and me leading. So normally my role was like, let's do the, let's do the talking bit, the philosophical premise at the beginning, and then we're going to, you know, put that into the body. Right. And what ended up happening about six months through is it became much more of a conversation of teachers than a physical practice. However, I asked them, take these ideas to your teaching and start to see what here you can engage with. So I did that for 2022. That is and, so cool, um, Nikki. Like what an what an interesting experiment and and also really uh, inspiring to hear that you kind of let it evolve into what it needed to be. I mean, did you find that that was did terrifying? <laughs> Were you challenged Terrifying. by that? I mean, Terrifying. I would find like, I would find myself instinctively going back into like, I need to shape the space, you know, let's get the X, Y, Z's in order. Um, yeah. How did you, how did you accommodate those reactions within yourself? Uh, again, that's why I say it. I, I haven't gone back to the analysis yet. All I can tell you is that, and I said terrifying a few times because this is the part where we need to crack into academia, right? Because having the structure, having the syllabus, having the plan, having having the student perform in X, Y, and Z way, having this due at this time, all of that we could say is the like container and that's how the learning is gonna happen, right? The thing is, is that that's gonna, that's gonna reinforce the roles, right? It's gonna reinforce the like performative aspect of studentship. And, and, and so it was terrifying to say like, I have this inclination here to go here and to start to see what comes out of, um, or what can be applied to the yoga classroom pedagogically from um, another way of seeing. Uh, literally from another discipline, from the intersection of disciplines, you know, and and I and I feel like that's our future. Our future is this broadening of where we meet and where the crosses happen, right? Not like staying sort of sort of fundamentally on one track, because none of us are that one thing. <laughs> I mean, that's a strong statement. I don't think, I don't believe that all of us identify as one thing and that, you know, and, and, and that's the truth. The more we identify as one thing, the more it will exclude the alternatives, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it was, um, there were definitely moments where I thought, oh, Nikki, just, just teach a yoga class, like just teach an <laughs> asana class. And, and I have to say, I, I have to say like, you know, I don't really know. I say, I don't, I haven't analyzed the success or failure because one of the only ways a teacher may know that is attrition. 
So how many people registered at the beginning of the year? How many people were really kind of there in it by the end of the year? So attrition. Yet in this virtual world, like I absolutely, and in time zones and in the complications of people's lives, like I don't know really if it was attrition due to content, if it was, you know, we signed up for something for a year and there's always attrition because life just does that. Mm -hmm. So, so all I can say is that again, was not safe, was courageous, mm. but I certainly wasn't safe in the sense that, um, there's a lot of safety in the structure of, of an Iyengar yoga class and how it's built and how it progresses when you kind of shake up, well, that's not what we're doing here. We're, we're going to, we're going to look at it this way and we're going to have a dialogue. Um, yeah, it, 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 wow. uh, so this was a, was this, I'm just curious, I'm really curious about kind of the practicalities of it. So was this a, was this a weekly offering or was it a monthly no, offering? Monthly. Monthly. We did. Okay. Uh, yeah. We and you do January like a chapter December. each month. Yeah. And then sometimes you would maybe like say a little bit about it and sometimes it was more open and flexible and it just sort of emerged. Yeah, we did chapter by chapter. I think we had finished the book by July and then um, there was an integration exercise where mm -hmm. uh, students paired up or got into groups of twos or threes to have um, their own dialogue of discovery around something that they were learning. So, yeah. It's fascinating. I think it's so interesting. And I mean, incorporating a, a sort of a, a reading group into a yoga class is very up my alley. So I just love, I love <laughs> hearing about it. And I think it's really inspiring to hear about what you're doing and about how you're teaching practices is evolving. I do think it's courageous, but it's also so, there's a humility uh, to kind of acknowledging the the changing cultural, social context, such that you submit yourself to the process of evolution. And I think like you should be commended for that. And it's really inspiring. And, and I'm so glad you're leading what, as far as I'm concerned, is a really kind of radical, back to radical pedagogy, a radically responsive and innovative just way of rethinking how we learn and how we accommodate uh, inclusion and different ways of knowing how we create community within the framework of a yoga class. So I'm just really inspired to talk to you about this and, and thank you so much for doing what you're doing. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you so much. I, I, I'm going to, say just like on a final note that um well i usually speak all of you that are listening to this and something will arise in my awareness and and that's where i go next uh it takes someone else at times to see the direction you can go in and i mentioned that my advisor Sean Hawthorne at SOAS sent me for this testing because her response to me was, you found all of these brilliant ways around this, you know, uh, this challenge, right? This 
quote unquote, learning disability. You found all these ways to create an opportunity for yourself to learn. And, um, and the reason that I'm saying that is, is that it, it was her encouragement, even through my dissertation. And then, you know, in, in, in recommendations for the PhD that someone else says, you know, there's something here, there's more there, you can go there, you know, and, and I just, uh, you know, I want to say that, that again, that for me is the bigger web. That is the, that is the grace is that what I can't see in myself, that someone I trust, right? Someone I respect sees is enough to take that step, to take that brave step, to take that courageous step. Uh, and, and that, and that, it, it really comes back to then why would we have a teacher? Why do we have a teacher? Because that's the nature of how that exchange could be is that the student inspires the teacher and then the teacher is inspired and gives more. And then the teacher gives something and sees this incredible thing happen for a student and, and some part of their potential just becomes visible. And then that support is there to see that the student takes that, you know, and, and goes with it and runs with it. So I, uh, I am always uh, in gratitude mm. to these traditions that I've come from, to the uh, structures that I also had to challenge from within and notice that you know, as, as difficult as those structures can be, I can always find myself in it and recognize like where and how, um, the growth is happening. Mm. This, the person that you mentioned, this was one of your professors at SOAS, right? Yeah. It became, became my advisor. Me became your advisor. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's the story you always want to hear, you know, that like that one of your professors like inspired that next part of the journey. So I'm so glad you found that. And and that you turned this challenge that, you know, for other I mean, I just love that you found out you were dyslexic or you, you know, you confirmed something that you'd had a hunch about for a long time. And then you turned around and said, I'm going to do a PhD anyway. I mean, that's like <laughs> I it's really amazing and really inspiring. So uh, it's awesome. So Nikki, this has been fabulous. It's always so lovely to talk to you and we will probably talk again in another hundred episodes. Um, <laughs> another, hopefully not six or seven years uh, from now. Uh, how can people find you? Where, where do people go to take your class? I should say that Nikki will be, maybe I'll just plant the seed so that she'll, um, put a fire under her ass to record these for us. Uh, but she will be submitting some classes to embodied <laughs> philosophy. But I, I actually now listening to you, I kind of want to offer a space for you to do something a little more like you were describing. So maybe we can talk about that at some point. Um, but <laughs> besides that, where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? Mm. How can they jump on board on the Nikki wagon? Oh, Jacob. Okay. So my name is Nikki Costello, and uh, that is also my website. So if you 
do a Google search, NikkiCostello.com, you'll get to me. On my website, uh, you'll get a little bit more around my education and background and, uh, you know, so forth. And um, there's also an online uh, classes tab. So I've, uh, in the last year, actually December 2021, um, opened, so to speak, my own virtual studio called Nikki Costello, The Practice, and it's on union.fit. And so uh, what has been really incredible, because this is probably closer to the scholarly approach, right? I've, I've been able to... Um, you know, create an archive, create a library of over 300 classes uh, that fall under different uh, titles, different themes. Uh, there's always an objective in terms of, of what's happening in that class. There are different times, uh, hour-long classes, hour-and-a-half classes, 30-minute classes. And, um, and now I'm offering an advanced practice. It's called the advanced practice. Um, and so these are ways that you could connect to um, jumping into a live class, jumping in, dropping in to a live class and or uh, becoming a, a subscriber, so to speak, that that is access to a really rich uh, library learning space. Thank you, Nikki. So you heard it, NikkiCostello.com, right? Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, go check out Nikki. And if you didn't listen to our previous um, interview, it was also a lovely conversation that we had a number of years ago. I think it's episode nine or something like that. And uh, you'll see Nikki soon uh, on Embodied Philosophy, hopefully hopefully not too long from now. And if you haven't um, listened to her lecture on um, uh, it, that was a part of the Radical Pedagogy Conference that we did last fall. Do go check that out. It's available now on the in the in the library um, on embodiedphilosophy.com. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you, Nikki. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jacob. <laughs>